Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Do you have an app idea that you've been dreaming about but don't know how to actually start building it? Use Bubble. I've been using Bubble for a number of years now. It's an extremely powerful, no-code platform that enables you to build, launch, and scale real products without investing thousands of dollars on engineers, designers, or spending time trying to code it yourself. Use Bubble's visual drag-and-drop tool to create really anything from marketplaces, SaaS products, and so much more. Join over 2 million people, including myself, already using Bubble to launch and grow businesses. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Kyle Van Voris. He's the CEO at Voris. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show too. I, I think what we're going to talk about today, well, let's be honest, anybody, any business on the planet basically struggles with this and, and hopefully is trying to get better at it. And, you know, the teams that actually really figure it out in my opinion anyway are the ones that are truly successful totally. but but maybe before we get into all that let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up sure i grew up um for the most part i was born in new jersey but for the most part i grew up in uh, the san francisco bay area okay so walk us through what made you move to the bay area just family yeah, so I was actually a kid. So I, I was okay. born in New Jersey. I probably moved when I was around four or five. And, um, you know, my dad uh, came out here for work. And for the most part, grew up in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. I went to high school here um, and uh, middle school, elementary school. So my whole life, I grew up in this area. Very cool. So walk us through the rest of your education into your career. Totally. So um, I was, you know, going to high school like most good kids do. After sure. I graduated, I went to a junior college and I spent probably about a year and a half to two years there before I decided to drop out to do stand up comedy. That was my real passion. Uh, throughout uh, high school, I did a lot of theater. When I was 17, I started doing stand up. So at a certain point, I was failing most of my classes anyway. So I was like, you know what? I don't like this anymore. Um, actually, I never liked it. So I'm like, just going to stop doing it. I'm going to start doing stand up full time. And in order to do that, I got a job at uh, a gym selling gym membership. And it was perfect because I could sell during the day and then at night I could do stand up and I can go deeper into the kind of the story after this, but I'll, uh, I'll kind of just tell you how I got into the tech sales portion here. I was selling gym memberships at this, uh, at this gym in the East Bay and my boss actually left the gym to go work at a company called Intuit. They make QuickBooks, TurboTax. And sure. he called me up and was like, Hey, you need to get into tech sales. This is going to change your life. You can't just sell gym memberships your whole life. Uh, I think you'd be really good at this. So why don't you come and interview? And the problem was Intuit required a college degree. So I was like, hey, I don't think I can. They 
they need a college degree. And he was like, ah, I, I think they'll overlook you because you know me. It turns out he was trying to get his uh, his referral bonus for um, referring somebody <laughs> who gets hired. And uh, they ended up overlooking it. And I did a really good job on our mock uh, on my mock cold call. They took a chance on me. And I'm forever grateful for that. I started as a uh, as an SGR, so cold calling. That's amazing, actually. That's so I, I'm curious before we dive into it a little bit deeper, how do you think kind of public speaking and well being a stand-up comedian really helped with sales? I get asked this a lot, and it's not as obvious as you would you would think. Uh the main thing it helps you with is handling uh rejection. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> You get rejected a lot as a comedian and you get very, very good at it. And what's really cool about it is when you have a bad show and stand up afterwards, there's this culture of reflecting. Hey, how could that joke have been better? What could I tweak? How could I improve it? And that's applied when I started as an SCR cold calling because after calls that didn't go well, I would do the same thing. And I almost disconnect my own uh, kind of my own person and uh, me as a person from the activity and i can start looking at it more objectively and the same thing is with when you do stand up like i don't get off of a stage if i do a, a perform if i perform somewhere and i do poorly i don't get off the stage and say god i suck no i go huh that joke didn't land and then let me right. work on that and the same thing applies with cold calling as far as like having a good sense of humor sure that's helpful for interpersonal uh, connections but there's not anything i mean i think that's a pretty big one but there's not anything more than that uh just from my own experience no interesting uh so walk us through the rest of your career up until basically goris sure so i like i said into it start as an sdr about 10 months later, I get promoted okay. to uh, to an account executive. So I'm actually in a sales role and I would still get called back to like work with some of the newer, often struggling SDRs. So, and, and I know what it's like to be that. I know what it's like to be an SDR with, with uh, inadequate training is trying to be as successful as they can. So I, I've always had kind of one foot into that world. And what ended up happening, this was around the time if if anybody remembers listening, when Zenefits was really blowing up, another kind of Silicon Valley startup, they were exploding. And the word around the uh, around the office was, hey, you got to go to Zenefits. Zenefits is the best. Uh, they, so I call it getting bit by the startup bug because everyone was all excited. So I ended up going to a different startup. I didn't go to Zenefits, but that was sort of the genesis of this idea of like, hey, maybe I should go somewhere else that's more of a startup and I can catch you know the next Zenefits. That was kind of the idea. <laughs> Um, of course, Zenefits ended up blowing up for anybody who remembers that story. But I went to a company called TalkDesk. I was there for about a year um, in a closing role there. Afterwards, I wrote um, a book called Cold Committed. That's a book on how to do outbound prospecting for SDRs specifically. And a big reason why I wrote that book was because at TalkDesk, the SDR team really struggled. And I spent a lot of time trying to help them improve. And uh I had always thought about writing a book because there wasn't a lot back then. There's actually no book when I was an SDR wow. that I could find. Now there's, you know, infinite. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote the first version of the book. From there, I ended up running the sales development team at a company called Forasol. It's a financial tech company based out of San Francisco, scaled that team from three people to 14. And we went from 120 million in assets under management to over a billion in less than 20 months. Wow. Uh, very That's fast. That's huge. 
Yeah, really, really fast. Um, so I was very fortunate to go through that experience and all of our business was generated through our outbound uh, SDR efforts, or I shouldn't say all, we had one person on inbound, but the vast majority of the business we did was through outbound. Uh, after that, I went to go repeat the success at a company called Intuit. I also rewrote the book called The Committed around this time because um, of the first version I didn't think was structured very well. I wasn't a good writer back then. So I rewrote the book uh, and then I ran the inside sales team at a company called Bloom Global. It's a global supply chain software company. Uh, we did incredibly well there and then COVID hit and it hit supply chain really hard. Right. So they laid off my team and they gave me a different role at the company and there was a huge pay cut. So I took what was a side consulting business, Voris, and I started working to get more consulting clients, kind of offset the reduction in my income. And Smart. it ended up going well and kept getting customers, couldn't manage the two and went full time with Voris a, a little over two and a half years ago. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Really, uh, you learn a lot when you kind of go through each of these different experiences, each job that I've I've had. Um, I've been able to take away something. And not only do you learn a lot about yourself, but you also learn a lot of skills that become valuable later. Totally. And I love the fact that you basically didn't just like quit your job and started something like you were doing it as a side hustle. Something unfortunate happened to you. And then you know, you just kind of scaled that up, right? I think that happens to more people than they're willing to admit. Totally. And one thing I'll add there too is it's okay to do that. Totally. Like, it's okay to, to work on a couple of things on the side and just have it as something that's on the side until you're ready. Like I started the business when it was the right time for me to start a business. A lot of people get all fired up and they try to take their side hustle and make it their main thing as quickly as they can because they want to get out of the nine to five. I didn't have that mentality. You know, I had a side consulting business and I would do while I was driving to uh, to work and then I would be in the parking lot for the remaining 30 minutes of um, whatever, you know, coaching session that I was doing with, um, I was mostly um, consulting with uh, founders and then sometimes they would have me do coaching for their managers. An hour, you know, an hour call, half of it driving, the other half would be me sitting in the parking lot. I'd get into the office at 7.30 in the morning because my clients were on East Coast and I didn't have a huge desire to try to blow up some, you know, other company. I wanted to sell some copies of my book. I wanted to have a blog and build an audience and do a little bit of consulting on the side. And then when it became the right time, that's when I decided to do it. No, I, I think that's that's actually really good advice and just making it work for you, right? And And whatever that means, right? Like in your case, it was you know, while you were driving and just sitting in the parking lot, right? Like that happens all the time, but like nobody yeah. talks about that or not a lot of people talk about that. Yeah, it's totally true. And and also you need to be ready. Like totally. If you're really young in your career, like you probably need to get good at something before you start consulting yeah. on something, <laughs> you know, if that's the route you end up taking, just my two cents at least. No, I 100% agree with you. So let's dive deeper into Voris. What exactly is it and what made you actually decide to start it? So we work with B2B companies. So this might be a software company or service company, but B2B is the, the main focus that we have. And we help them build a scalable sales process. And I started the company because at different phases of the organization, and as you're growing a company, you hit these weird uh, plateaus. Early on, of course, it's building the first team. You're like, gosh. 
this is a lot more difficult than I thought. And then the yeah, team starts yeah. getting a little bit bigger and you're like, you know what? Most of our reps are not performing very well. <laughs> we have a couple of reps that do. The rest of the reps, reps don't perform that great. And we don't really know why. And then you start solve that problem. And then you get a little bit bigger and you're like, okay, well, our core reps have always done well, but the newer reps aren't doing well. So there's these different milestones that you run into issues. And it's rare that I find a, a company that has a problem with training or they have a problem with like they're missing a the tool that they should be using. Often I find it being one of these three things. So the first is that the individual reps on the team don't know what they have to do to be successful. The second is that the leadership team doesn't know how to use data to figure out how to make the team successful. And then the third one, which sometimes is a consequence of the first two is <clears throat> there's a culture where poor performance is tolerated. And we work with organizations to help put systems in place, processes, messaging, the leadership fundamentals to help them run really successful sales organizations. Okay. Interesting. Do you want to maybe dive a little bit deeper into like, like, okay, so I, I'm running a company, for example, how, how, like walk me through, and I'm struggling with sales, like walk us through. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have probably an initial call. I give you my issues. Like walk us through kind of how I would work with your company. Sure. So the first thing we do is we do an analysis of your historical data. We'd interview your team. We'd interview the executive team. We look at any materials you have. We do competitor overviews. And what we do is we construct a roadmap that's basically saying, hey, you are here today. You would like to be over there. And that's usually a revenue target. So let me just use a real example. Sure. Um, a customer comes to us and they're saying like, hey, we need to do 2 million in revenue next year. We're probably going to close out the year close to 1 million in revenue. So I'd like to do 3 million, including net new sales uh, next year. Okay, great. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the gaps in your current process and we're going to model out what it's going to take to actually get there. And we take a very data-driven approach. So we model out the team and we look at some areas that you're lacking that have a, a big impact on your ability to hit that revenue target of adding 2 million in new revenue for this example that we're walking through. <clears throat> Once we've constructed that roadmap and we have a very simple, hey, first thing we need to do is we need to actually be tracking the team's performance. You guys do a horrible job making sure that you know uh, where every deal is in the pipeline. Or if it's an SDR team, uh, you don't do a great job understanding what channels of outreach are most effective for you. <clears throat> Once we have our fingers on the pulse of what needs to change, then for the rest of our engagement with a, with a company, we're actually helping them implement either a better reporting structure or better quotas or even messaging. Maybe the messaging is terrible. Maybe their demo script isn't good. We actually work with them and co-create those materials to fill the gaps that they need to fill in order to get them closer to their revenue target. Interesting. And then, yeah, okay. And then it's all backed by data. Cause like, I'm sure you get this all the time. A lot of, a lot of stuff in startups is opinion based. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but it can, it can be very right. It could be very wrong or somewhere in the middle. And it's usually somewhere in the middle. Right? Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, in the absence of data. So when you have data, right. you're constructing hypotheses based on that data, and then you're measuring the changes that you make. So I can tell you what's right or wrong. Now, I can't talk to you right now and tell you based on my opinion what I think would be right for you, 
Right. But give me a month and give me a team, I can tell you, oh, no, 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 this actually is better. So let me give you a real example of this. Okay. And I'll go to cold calling for this because for some reason, this is things get very controversial around cold calling. Uh, one thing that people love to debate is opening a cold call with how are you? It's a common debate you'll read online. Should okay. you say, how are you? you know, uh, hey, uh, hey, Kevin, this is Kyle. How's it going? Going good. And then you go into your normal pitch, right? Right. Uh, people, that's controversial somehow. I've tested this extensively. It has, has it, it has had no impact on the teams that open with how are you? So why are we debating it? Why don't you just try to figure out if it works for you or if it doesn't work for you? Real quick, just uh, another example here, more strategic and higher level. We've worked with four different cybersecurity companies at Boris. Okay. I thought I could copy and paste the strategy because they sell the same thing. Did not work. Each company had a different approach and sometimes dramatically different. Well, how is that possible? It's the same offering selling into a similar market. Well, similar is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in that sentence. It's not the same market. And honestly, in a lot of right. cases, the offer is a little different too. So those variables change what you have to do on the sales side. And people don't acknowledge that. Sales is a complex organization, but people act like it's simple because it can be articulated in a very simple way. The reality is there's a lot of variables. You have sales reps that are supposed to understand the challenges the prospects are facing. They're supposed to uh, help them understand how to solve those challenges. They need to position your product or service as a solution to those challenges and ask for their money. And then meanwhile, they're getting all this right. internal pressure from leadership and they're you being told, hey, here's your aggressive numbers. Oh, you also need to do this. Hey, we need to change the script over here. Oh, we're not converting enough over there. There's a lot of variables that are going on. And I think, unfortunately, we tend to oversimplify this part of the organization and we shouldn't. We should treat it like what it is. And fortunately, we can use data to help navigate all of the challenges that this function has. Interesting. Okay, so you probably get this some of the time. What if a company doesn't have data? And then I guess this follow-up question to that is how can they start actually collecting that, whether they're, you know, a brand new company or, you know, been around for a number of years? So if they're not collecting data well, uh, it's a good excuse to start. So you want to track as many things as you possibly can. When it comes to your sales what? teams. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I would, let me give some examples of like what you would track. Sure. Perfect. So for, um, let's say, let's say you're talking about your SDR and your AE team, and let's say you're tracking nothing today, which isn't the truth for most organizations, but let's just say it is. And you wanted right. to do things perfect off of the bat. Here's what I typically say, typically will suggest. There's seven metrics that need to be tracked. The first metric is activity. And I'd like to, uh, to track that metric across every channel that activity is happening. How many calls are we making? How many emails are we sending? How many LinkedIn messages, whatever channels you use, how much activity is our team doing in order to generate appointments? The next is how many engagements are we getting as a result of that activity? An engagement might be a prospect answering the phone. So a phone connect, as you'd call it. It might be somebody replying to an email or a LinkedIn message. How many engagements are we getting? The next one is how many appointments are we getting? Now, all three of those, you should be tracking per channel. So if you do cold calls and you do cold email, we need to know how many calls are going out or how many calls are happening, 
how many people are answering the phone, how many appointments are being booked through calls. We need to know how many emails are going out, how many uh, replies we're getting to those emails, and how many meetings are being booked through emails. Okay, so you have those three. Once you, Then from appointment, the next is deal stage one. So what's the first stage in your sales process? You want to see what the um, the kind of conversion is between an appointment being booked and then actually making it to deal stage one. That's a function of show up rate. It's also a function of qualification rate. And then from deal stage one to deal stage two, deal stage two to deal stage three, and then deal stage three to close one. You have to adjust that based on how many deal stages you have. Um, but that's ideal. If you could track that across all of the deals that are happening, you can do a strong cohort analysis and figure out, hey, we did 5,500 activities last month. We ended up closing three deals as a result of those activities. So how many uh, engagements did those activities generate? How many appointments? And then ultimately how many closed deals? And by tracking the percentage drop off across each one of those KPIs I just outlined, each one of those seven, what you end up finding are bottlenecks within your sales process that you can then start to focus on, build a hypothesis around how to fix it, and then you know run an experiment with a new process to see that if it actually, does it actually solve that problem? Interesting. Makes sense. So, and I don't know, maybe this is like, as somebody that's a designer, sales has always been something I'm like so brutally bad at. And it feels like it's this black box that I just like can never crack or spend enough time to, to care. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are maybe in a sales position or a CEO and they don't come from a sales background. What advice do you give to them? Like, where do they even really start? So you start with making sure we're doing the activities that are needed in order to hit our numbers. So okay. a lot of people are getting a little uncomfortable around this, but sales is very much a numbers game. I just gave you a bunch of KPIs right. that you have to track. It's very much a numbers game, but you know, it's same thing with design. Like if you're working on a product, you're evaluating the usage of that product. So Facebook, for example, this is like two years ago, they, um, they gave me like a $50 gift card to come do like a UX research thing. Okay. And normally I ignore all those, but I was like, you know what? It might be kind of fun to go to the Facebook campus and like look at different versions of Facebook. So I went totally. and they just watch me use weird versions of Facebook that are totally off the wall, crazy. Like absolutely okay. nothing like how Facebook looks today. And, um, they just would, they videoed me. They asked me questions on how I felt about going through certain things. You do research and you figure out what's the user's behavior. The exact same thing you're doing in sales. It's the exact same process, except instead of a user, there's a prospect. What are they actually inspired by to take action and do more of that? So you evaluate your sales process in the same way. So the first step, if you're like, brand new and you're just building your first sales team is when you bring on people, make sure they're doing enough activities so you actually start using the data to be able to tweak the process. So your reps are making cold calls. Are they making hundred cold calls a day? Great. What's that telling you? Are people booking meetings or are they not booking meetings? You know, it's kind of the same thing with UX research. Like, are they right. clicking the button? Or they confuse and they don't realize it's a button <laughs> or whatever. You know, I'm not a designer, so I, I'm not going to have well, That's actually a perfect example. You're right. It, it, it's interesting the parallels between the two. Right. Or here's maybe this is a more uh, classic example where it's like 
did the user expect that that would be a drop down when it wasn't right yeah. and um the same thing's happening here like oh did they show up to the meeting and they feel like it didn't align with the expectations that were set on the cold call so it's very very similar and if you treat it the same way and this resonates a lot with founders that are more um maybe they have an engineering background or they're a little bit more analytical uh yeah. because you're treating it the exact same way just look at the data the problem is everyone feels that sales is so touchy feely oh it's your personality they're likable which is all true like that's part of it but the numbers tell you exactly what's going on within the organization and just because sales people are very kind of eq you know very good at building relationships chatting with people have fun personalities doesn't mean we can't be very data driven and analytical about the behaviors that they're doing that are driving the result that we're looking for and if you start taking that approach especially early on you'll find you'll be able to iterate a lot quicker and you'll get to a better result it's more like you're building up its own product than it is your um you're kind of, then you're just building a sales team. It's almost like a product, right? You're trying to figure out what works best. And then you're making changes based on that feedback. Fascinating. Yeah. I've never actually heard sales put like that to me. And it, it totally makes sense. Yeah. I think it's, it, look, it's, is it a super new idea? No, um, large Oracle has been doing this for decades. You know, it's just, they had more access to data back then now everybody has access to the same data and you can evaluate your team like this from the beginning um people get weird around sales and i can tell you there's also a lot of salespeople that aren't great there's a lot of sales leaders that aren't great and people hire a sales leader like a vp of sales or they hire a salesperson it doesn't work out the way they were expecting and they're like gosh this is just isn't working for for us i doubt they took a very data-driven approach when they were building those teams and the people who were leading the team either didn't know what they were doing or they had experience as a sales leader as at an organization that already had somewhat of a process when they started which is very different than if you're starting something from scratch so depending on what stage you are at in an organization just the approach changes a little bit sure well and then to your point earlier just just because even if you move companies doesn't mean your successful sales process will work at the new company. It may or may not. It maybe it's probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, you're hundred percent right about that. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's the same with design. You know, it, it, every, uh, every app looks different. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason for that. If there was one right way of doing something that worked for this specific type of product, all the apps would look the same, but they don't. Interesting. Yeah, no, that fascinating. So I, I want a little dive a little bit deeper into some of the other kind of services and and consulting that you guys do so yeah our main our main service or is um a six-month program where we work okay. really hands-on with an organization we help them uh create a scalable sales process. So in some cases, our clients are brand new. They've never built a sales team and they're building their first team. And we right. help them do that. Uh, like for example, we worked with a um, project management solution for architects. Uh, they were at 400K in ARR when uh, they started working with us and they had no salespeople. 11 months later, they had 
eight salespeople and they were at 1.2 million. So they three X wow. in, uh, in 11 months. Uh, that's the power of having a strong sales function. And then other uh, customers that work with us, they have a team already and they're just not meeting the expectations and we take them through, you know, the same structure of program. It's just very, um, very different because they already have a team in place and got a similar type of results. Like once you put in a culture of, one data hygiene, but also analyzing and using data in order to make decisions, things typically get better fairly quickly, especially if it's an organization that has been tracking some stuff already, they're just not using it very well. Um, as far outside of you know, our core program, where we're, like I said, working really hands-on uh, with these organizations, we also do training and coaching for SDRs and AEs. We have a, a group a training program that we've developed for that, that all of our customers uh, for the most part have their reps doing and then we also do um, some some sourcing and we really only will recruit for our our clients that are in that six-month program but we have um, kind of a recruiting department here and we actually look and uh, we'll find really strong SDR and AE talent and we'll place it we'll place them at our um, at our clients companies interesting so with existing sales teams, though, and I'm sure you probably get asked this a lot, there's obviously going to be people at the company and on the team that embrace you coming in and then kind of are maybe a bit more hesitant or, or less like, we don't need consult like consultants. Yeah. Like, how do you work with teams to kind of, you know, get everybody back on the same page? So there's what we try to do, and then there's sometimes the worst case scenario. Um, so what we do is we explain why we're, we're there. Okay. That's usually a good first step. And yeah, we, have, we have executive approval. So like the CEO typically has, or the CEO has definitely signed off on this. If they right. have a sales leader in place, they were, they're usually involved in this as well earlier before they uh, hire us. So we explain to the whole team why we're, why we're there, what we're going to be um, doing and what impacts going to have on them. At the end of the day, salespeople make commission. The more effective I can make a sales rep, the more commission they'll make. So we'll right. just show them that and say like, listen, this is what you guys are doing now. You're basically, you're making your base salary. I imagine everybody here would like to be making double the amount of money. Am I wrong? No, <laughs> you're not wrong. Okay, great. So let's follow my process and we're going to get, you know, we're, we'll get you there. Now that doesn't always work. You know, sometimes there's people who've just been stuck in their ways and they have a lot of pushback. They like the way they're doing it. Um, at the end of the day, it's a performance-based role. And if you have reps that aren't hitting their targets, and they like doing it their way and they're not going to do it another way and they're not hitting their targets, then they leave. You let them go. You can't keep people around who aren't meeting your expectations. That goes back to that, that third um, reason why I see a lot of sales teams struggling. They have a culture of poor, poor performance. And for every poor performing sales rep, there's an average sales rep that's getting pulled down instead of pulled up. And that's what you want is pulling up. But too many people allow folks that they like to sit in the sales role, not perform to expectations, and they wonder why their entire sales organization struggles. So that doesn't happen when we're involved. And I've told three different organizations to fire their VPs of sales because yeah. they were the problem. And sometimes you're saying, hey, these 
sales reps are the problem and you either need to put them in a different part of the organization or you need to remove them from the organization. And it's a tough conversation to have, but I can tell you almost every single time I've made that kind of recommendation, the CEO or founder has said, yeah, I've been feeling that way for a while and I just needed somebody to kick me in that direction. So oftentimes, you know what you need to do when you have these kind of sales organizations. Uh, you're just uh, you just don't have the validation you need to actually execute on, on what your gut's telling you. No, that makes sense. I, I'm curious then. So if you come into, you probably get asked this all the time, like, well, I want our salespeople to, you know, we're at a million dollars in revenue. We want to be 10, $10 million in revenue. Like, <laughs> yeah. Make that happen. Like you probably get these on, oh. like, it's not, maybe it's attainable, maybe down the road, but like not in a year or, Right. right. Like how do you handle right. that and set a, setting expectations? It's actually super easy. Um, okay. It sounds hard on the surface, but I have the best way to do it. Um, I go, great. You want to hit, you're at 1 million now. You want to hit 10 million? Perfect. Let's pull out my model and let's figure out exactly how many people you need to hire in order to hit that target. And I take their data and I model out exactly how many people they would need in order to hit that $10 million target. And then I look at them. I said, are you prepared to hire 20 sales reps and 15 SDRs? or whatever the number would have to be, depending on the product right. size. That's probably high, honestly. But um, And they go, oh, we're not ready to do that. Okay, well, then we're not hitting 10 million next year. And the where this conversation gets the most interesting is when um, they've taken venture money. So right. you've a million dollars in ARR, and you're like, hey, I need to hit 3 million because we're trying to triple, triple, double, double. It's like, okay, great. Well, you got big goals. Welcome to kind of big sales goals too. Now <laughs> we're going to have to hire you know, eight people or Right. It's probably going to be five SDRs and three AEs, and we're going to need to onboard those people within the next four months. And you have to be prepared to spend, you know, spend the money it takes to do that. And if you raised venture capital, then you have no choice because you told the board you were going to do it. And people still get a little bit stuck on that, but the data tells me exactly what we need to do. And I'm putting your data into a model and telling you based on your historic performance, or if it's brand new, based on reasonable, super conservative estimates, this is what we'll need to, in order to, to kind of make it happen. And then, you know, let's hold hands and skip along the, the journey together. Interesting. No, that's, that's cool. So I'm curious, Ben, what advice do you give to you know, maybe tech founders or, or other people that aren't traditionally a sales team or, or salesperson at all, because the, the reality is, is we have an idea, we're starting to build something, mm -hmm. we're trying to get our first customers, you know, and then hopefully if it takes off, we're, we're going to build out a sales team. Yep. So I always like, first of all, the founder has to sell. If the founder's not selling, there's a problem. Like people aren't just going to, you know, it, this is becoming a little bit more common because everyone's like, oh, we're product led with our growth. It's like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, Slack has 200 salespeople right now. So <laughs> that's the, the you know, the golden child of product led. So um, it's a lot more complex than that. And I'm a big believer in product led growth. Um, but there's also a sales motion that works in tandem with that. Um, in my experience, that's most effective. So you have to sell as the founder originally. And depending on the situation, and I'll give you a couple of scenarios here just so people can put themselves in, in the shoes of the scenario. Uh, the first scenario is you've raised zero uh, venture capital. 
uh, or capital in general, and you don't have the um, the resources you need in order to to build out a real sales function, but you can maybe hire somebody that's inexpensive. I typically recommend starting by hiring an SDR and having them do cold outreach for you, uh, or work some of your inbound leads, and then you treat yourself as the founder. You treat yourself as the sales rep. So then that SDR is now booking meetings for you and then you're responsible for closing those meetings. And then once you get so busy to where you can't really manage both running the company as well as doing all of the sales calls, at this point, you're probably generating a bit more revenue and it would make sense to bring on an account executive to take over for you as the sales hire, the salesperson. So that's the first one if they didn't raise money. If you did raise capital, welcome. This is the fire hose now. Totally change the approach and you just do the math on how many people you need in order to hit your revenue target and you hire them as quickly as possible and then you fire people who don't work. So um, it's a little cold-blooded, but this is what you have to do in the beginning. Um, uh, Also, depending on how much uh, money you raise, like that's obviously going to influence what revenue targets are going to be attainable for you, um, specifically when it comes to how, what percentage of that funding you can allocate towards the sales uh, department. So what I'll typically see is an organization is comfortable hiring uh, three to four people, maybe if they raise money, depending on what round it is and how, and how much they raised. But let's say it's four people just to keep things simple. You would probably start by hiring two SDRs and two AEs right off the bat. You do that as quickly as possible. Um, if you have to pick which one to start and you're not a sales fan founder, I would start with account executives, have them do full cycle. So they do their own prospecting and booking their own appointments and then bring on the SDRs quickly after that. But if you modeled it out appropriately, you can't really delay your hiring. So you need to move with urgency here because uh, there will be bumps and challenges along the way. And you're going to be at risk of mix- missing the uh, targets that you gave the board uh, because you're being slow. So I would hire four people and then I would keep the job open. I would keep interviewing people and hopefully everybody works out, but because there's enough people, there's some competition. Uh, sometimes people don't work out and then you can replace them with uh, new hires if you have to, but hopefully you don't have to, it just depends. Got it. Okay. How is the sales landscape right now? Obviously tech's all doom and gloom and seems to be yeah. all over the map lately. Is it a challenge to hire decent salespeople? Do you recommend going to, you know, in your case, like you got recruited from selling gym gym memberships, like going to the non-tech sector? Yeah, which which I love. Um, For SDRs, I love hiring right out of college. I'm going to say something that's going to be uncomfortable for people to hear. And um, this is just the reality. If you're a salesperson, you're getting laid off right now and they didn't lay off the entire sales department you weren't a top performer and if you're a startup company you want to hire top performers or people who have the potential to be a top performer so that's why i like hiring right out of college for sdrs for account executives it's a little bit trickier and i do look for people with experience Salespeople are very good at selling themselves so if you go to um our website, we have a framework that we use to evaluate this. That's one of our blog posts. If you just type in um, like hiring salespeople and Voris, it'll pop up on Google. Uh, we, we have a, a strong process for evaluating sales talent, but the key is you want the top performer. So yeah, tech is in shambles right now. And if you're talking to a candidate from a company that didn't fire every salesperson that they have on staff, and instead they hired, they fired 80, 70, 80% of them, 
odds are you're not talking to somebody who was a top performer. And I don't know if you can afford to hire somebody who wasn't a top performer. Maybe you can, maybe you can. It's up for the individual founder to decide, but that's something that makes hiring today a little bit more tricky than it was before when there's a lot less layoffs. Um, the underperformers were still there, but right now the market is flooded with underperformers. So you're getting a lot more applications being filled out than you were previously. Interesting. So why do you recommend hiring people right out of school? A couple of reasons. Specific, this is specific for the SDR role. Um, yeah. And I love college athletic background. I'll actually give you a couple of my like criteria here in a minute. But why do I like hiring people out of school? Uh, typically, they're more driven because this is their first job in the workforce. They're excited. They're very motivated. They want to progress in their career. So I like that. Um, they're also new. So I can shape um, that candidate or that, uh, that employee into what I want them to be based on our culture here. You know, they're a lot more green and they're more coachable and they're willing to learn and they they adjust. And I really like that. And I like being around people that are um, curious. And I like being around people who are excited to learn new things. And I find that best in people that I hire right out of college. A couple of things that I look for is I do not like hiring uh right out of college if they didn't work or play um athlete, have a were in athletics in college uh I, I i don't have an interest in in hiring people who did not work or do athletics in college i think if um i think you should have if you went to college i think it's important for the sales role to have somebody who um you know kind of is able to manage both of those things at once. And I, I have a lot of respect for people who did that too. Uh, the other thing that I look for are people who are really naturally curious. And this applies to every role, um, even if you're hiring uh, people who had a job prior and not just out of college. But I look for curious people. I think there's a really important trait. So there's obviously the normal stuff, grid, that everybody talks about. But those are the two that I, I, I have as a bit of a rule. How do you look for? curiosity in somebody usually it's by the questions they ask me uh so i a big big part of my interview process is what questions is the candidate asking me and that just gets me excited if i have someone who's asking me really good questions that i don't normally hear and they're invested in our organization and they ask deeper questions after they've interviewed with other people and i'm on a second interview with them maybe uh that gets me really excited so that's by far the main reason the main way that i tell if somebody's more curious the other way is based on their interests so if they have a lot of i i always say if they have a lot of goofy interests that makes me more interested in them so for example i had a rep that i hired who used to compete in competitive snow machine races in alaska so he was born and raised in alaska okay and i was like that's crazy like how did you get into that and just the way he lit up and would tell me about about it and then there's like another thing he was really into investing too and like he was telling me about how he found his first he stumbled upon his first book because none of his family's had an investing background and then he ended up kind of going down the rabbit hole and following warren buffett's philosophy like just you, you, when you talk to somebody who has a lot of unique interests and they're unique people, usually they're more curious and uh, especially if they act on their curiosity, like I love that kind of stuff. Fascinating. Okay. Um, any other advice for, for people that, because obviously 
the job market's a little bit kind of, I, I don't know. It, it seems like people are either super busy or they're kind of struggling pretty hard. And obviously there's people in the middle, but it, it seems to be kind of like a big feast or famine right now. What advice do you give for people that, that maybe did get let go and maybe they knew they were, weren't a top performer or they weren't allowed to be a top performer? Cause I've had that before too, where it's like, I've got hired at companies and I was literally not allowed to do my job. And, right. you know, we don't need to get into that necessarily, but I think you know what I'm asking there. No, totally. I'm glad you asked it too, because I should put a little asterisk there. Every piece of advice I give is just a piece of advice. There's exceptions yeah. to everything, right? Like I'm, I'm generalizing here because I'm not talking to a specific organization. And there are a lot of sales reps that you're totally right, where they just weren't able to do their job. Like, for example, when I... um. I won't tell you which company it was, but when I started one of the companies that I worked at, uh, they just didn't give us any leads. And they're like, oh, the SDRs are going to book all your appointments for you. And they didn't. And I just went rogue and started doing my own outreach. And I booked more meetings in my first month doing that than the entire SDR team of 15 people. Wow. So I couldn't really do my job. And I got lucky. I ended up closing a deal. You know, it worked out. But it was very tough. So of course there are going to be situations like that. Now, if you're a sales rep and maybe you weren't a top performer or you weren't allowed to be good and you're kind of in this job market right now, there's two things that I think are really important to do. One is improve your own skills. You should be consuming everything that you can. Uh, and then the next one is you should be talking to as many companies as humanly possible. You should be interviewing everywhere. One, you get better at it. But two, right. you're also going to have a lot more opportunities, which gives you leverage to negotiate in a world where that's going to be less common moving forward because there's an increase in talent on the market. So if I was a sales rep, especially if I was a good one, I would have as many interviews as humanly possible. I would improve some of my own skills, but I would get really, really good at interviewing and make sure that I pick a company that I think would do that is on offense right now versus on defense, which is a lot of what, what a lot of companies are at. No, that's good advice. I also think too, that if you've been in the sales role before, you've probably worked with a bunch of people, like start reaching out to your network. Oh, totally. Yeah. It, it, it That's one thing that I've just been kind of just walk, just scrolling through LinkedIn. And it seems like people almost are hesitant to reach out for help sometimes, right? Especially when they're struggling, if they just got let go, especially if the whole team's gotten let go, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. You have to look to your network. That's where you'll find a lot of jobs, um, uh, you know, throughout your entire career. But I'll tell you, every job that I got other than the first one into it, I applied or I created if you look at my current job, but I just applied on, on I didn't use my network at all. So interesting. You totally try to use your network. You know, I got interviews through my network, but the jobs I ended up taking were not ones that were, um, part of my network and don't underestimate or wait, how should I say this? Don't overestimate other talent on the market. Like if you're, if you're a talented salesperson, you have to realize that person, the, the person at the company who's interviewing you has spoken to nine other sales reps. So 10 total. And most of them aren't great. Most of those interviews are not great. I can tell you as somebody who's done a ton of interviews, most people aren't great at interviews. So if you can be good at that, 
you'll really stand out, especially if you can ask questions and you're very thoughtful and you're also self-aware, you will stand out. So you should have confidence when you're doing that. And when you stumble upon a sales rep as a hire, as somebody hiring, you stumble upon a sales rep that stands out, you typically get really excited. And remember at the core of the sales role, you give me $5, I'll give you 15, right? Where we right. are a, a positive revenue generated part of the organization. So you should treat yourself like one and that gives you opportunity to negotiate and um, you know, ultimately get paid a lot. I think that's really good advice. We're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice that you would want to give people, whether just depending on where they are in their career that you think we maybe haven't covered yet today? Yeah. Take your job really seriously. If you're a sales rep, I mean, regardless of what job you're in, actually, so let me just remove sales from it. Like you should be taking that job incredibly seriously. You should be trying to do your best work possible. If you're not where you want to be in your career, <laughs> if you're exactly where you want to be and you want to coast at this level, sure, do the bare minimum. But I see so much content on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on YouTube of people talking about like doing the least possible to get paid the most. Yeah. I just feel like that's the wrong approach to have. And if you want to be successful, you have to demand excellence from yourself. And if you're not willing to do what it takes to become excellent in your current role, then you don't deserve to be anywhere further. You're not in the position you are because you uh, got screwed by somebody else or things haven't worked out the way you want. You're where you are because that's where you're supposed to be. And if you feel like you need to be in a better spot, then make it happen. But it starts with you. And too many people preach the message that it starts with somebody else. I think ultimately that's the kind of belief system that holds people back in their career. I actually think that's that's really good advice. I, I also, I'm curious though, obviously like sales isn't really like a necessarily nine to five, Monday to Friday type job. What advice do you give to people about kind of a work-life balance or even what have you found? Because in my honest opinion, sometimes I'm really good at it and other weeks or months, I'm terrible at it. Yeah, yeah. But it's also what works for you, you know? So yeah, each person is very different. Like I, you know, I, I've talked about this with burnout a lot okay. where people are all worried about burn burnout. And if you're in some people you talk to, they've never burnt out before. I'm yeah. like, what are you worried about? You haven't, you haven't hit the burnout mark. How do you know what it takes to burn out? Oh, I want to make sure I take vacation so I don't burn out. It's like, really? Or do you just want a vacation? Like you can be honest about saying, I just want a vacation. But if you've never experienced burnout before, you have no idea what your threshold is. And I can tell you as somebody who has experienced it, but also has had a bunch of incredibly stressful parts, moments in my career, what once used to burn you out at some point won't anymore. Yeah, that's good advice. So figure it out for you. And then focus on trying to expand your comfort zone and how should you balance it in the way that makes the most sense for you. So are you married with kids? No. Okay. You're probably working a bit more than somebody who is. Yeah. Oh, you have kids. You are married. Okay, great. Adjust your life accordingly. Make sure you're spending time with your kids. Make sure you're spending time with your family, but do what's, what's right based on your own life circumstances. Don't be worried about some mis mystical thing like burnout all of a sudden popping in your life because you didn't 
take an extra day off during the holiday season. Like it's ridiculous. It's just not how it happens. It's not because you worked too much. It's typically because you're working too much at towards an outcome that you don't feel like the work you're doing is actually leading you towards achieving. That's more of what burnout is than it is. Oh, I just worked too much this week. So I usually encourage people to try to be very um, self-aware of what makes you burn out or not be productive and what does and try to just keep doing more of what does. But I can tell you, people have been warning me of burnout my entire career and I've experienced it before. I can tell you what I do today would have burnt me out five years ago, but I'm doing it today and I'm not getting burnt out. We change, we evolve, we get better. And every single person who's listening to this, I would hope is on that track too, where they're, they're listening to this because they want to improve, they want to get better. And I would encourage them to stay on that track. No, I, I think that's that's really good advice. And I always hated those like stupid lists of like 20 things successful people do every day. It's like some of them might work for you. None of them might work for you. Yeah. All of them might work for you. And yeah. Depending on where you are in your career in life, try some new things and keep doing what works and stop doing what doesn't work. And Kevin, let me expand on that <laughs> real quick. I, you bring up a really good point. Uh, they also talk about like, oh, uh, you know, the average millionaire has seven streams of income or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. statistics. Yeah, now almost everyone who's gotten rich has gotten rich on one stream first and then diversified their streams of income. 100%. Every millionaire influencer who's telling you about their morning routine probably did something different when they were coming up. So do what yeah. works for you. Try to figure out what, you know, what's going to be best. And there are these these core fundamentals that you should be following and is journaling every day good yeah it is i don't do it <laughs> i wish yeah. i did but i yeah. don't but what i do works for me so figure it out for you i totally agree with that kevin no i i think that's really good advice and i wish i would have known that a lot sooner in my career than you know it took me so long to figure some of this stuff out and i i actually like stopped reading all those types of news articles it's like i just skim past them because i yeah. don't even care it's like sure there's like i probably lose the odd good tim tidbit of what i should be trying but it's like there's more 99 of it is just absolute garbage right or it's just like this hype piece well it's totally a, yeah it's totally a hype piece piece and it's it's disappointing because yeah there's a lot of people like the fundamentals are what work yeah. and look you can if if you're not where you want to be in your life today and, and almost your entire life you're guaranteed to always want to be somewhere better it's kind yeah. of the curse of being a kind of a high achiever but um in general like if your life isn't the way you want it to be a lot of times this stuff becomes procrastination it's like oh i journal every day but i'm you're really procrastinating like what actions do you really have to take and people love doing things that they feel make them better but don't put them in a position to fail, like journaling. Like you can, you never, I mean, if you stop journaling, I guess you're failing at it technically, but it's not like your whole family's yeah. going to laugh at you, but actually trying to grow a business. Like I remember when I first started Boris, I remember getting asked all the time, are you paying yourself yet? Are you paying yourself yet? Are you paying yourself yet? And the answer was no for 10 months. Yeah. I'm not, no, not yet. No, not yet. Oh, we have, you know, we have four clients right now. Oh, no, I'm not paying myself yet. And then, you know, what happened is I started paying myself and everyone stopped asking because they realized, oh shit, this is serious. Yeah. He, he, he was actually doing something the whole time. 
And that's going to happen with everybody else if they start their own business and also if they progress in their career. There's going to be people around who want the best for you and they're not naysayers, but they're going to ask you things and they're going to question you in ways that makes you feel like they're not confident in what you're doing. And the answer is, is because they're not, but eventually they will be. But you do that through actions. You don't do that from writing in a journal. Not, not that it's not healthy to write in a journal. I think you should, but uh, just in general, your actions are more important. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. But sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Boris, the book, and anything else you want to mention? Totally. So you, you'll find us at Boris.com. That's a V as in Victor, O-U-R-I-S.com. You can find me on LinkedIn too, Kyle Van Boris. I'm sure you'll my name will be in the title somewhere. So copy and paste it in. And uh, if you have any questions, never hesitate to reach out. I'm more than happy to chat with anyone. Perfect, Kyle. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Likewise. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.